The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 2 and 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, and that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstead from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slender of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of the Antipas, my faithful witness, who has killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there where hold the teaching of Balaam, and who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching to the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold his teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. 
Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. You, have, you will not wake up, and I will come like a thief. You will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk in with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one reopens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, and I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. To try those who dwell on the earth, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of the God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would you that were neither cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit out of your mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, but realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments shall that may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And I sell to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Churches uh, across the country are currently in a state of crisis. It's nothing new, really. It's, it's been this way since the beginning of the church, where church attendance, though there's been seasons of increased church attendance, but in this era specifically, church attendance is dropping. 
Only a small percentage of people who show up to church on Sunday mornings are, are regularly practicing spiritual disciplines, reading their Bible, praying, serving, giving, let alone doing it with joy. Across the nation right now, lo local churches are scrambling to find pastoral leadership, to find people who will step into churches and to, to carry the heavy burden of, of being the church. And in many, many cases, churches are looking for pastoral replacements, perhaps after moral failure, or, or a pastor just gets fed up with the work of the ministry and discouraged and walks away from it. Now, realizing that the church is in a volatile state, there have been many agencies that have seen this fragile state, and they've, they've stepped in to provide help. They study and survey, they interview congregants, they run diagnostics and, and mediate conflict, and they help bit, build a vision for the future of the church, usually at quite a steep cost. Now, sometimes this is effective. There are cases where churches are rehabbed from a process like this, but typically it's only a matter of years before churches realize that it's time to dissolve. Now, I don't say these things to prop us up and say, well, hey, look at them and look at how we're not like them. That would be taking a page from the book of the Pharisee who looked across the temple and said, I'm thankful that I'm not like that sinner, that tax collector. That's not my aim this morning. My aim this morning is to say, to look at this and say, that could be us, Sacred City. That could be us. We are always only one generation away from complete apostasy. Do you realize that? We're always one generation away from people completely hardening their hearts towards God to ignoring him and his word, to walking away from the church and living life on their own. Just one generation. And that's every church's reality, no matter how high their attendance, no matter how big their budget is, no matter how nice their facility, facilities are. We're one generation away from the gospel being forgotten our hearts being hard, and living a life of rebellion and self-sufficiency, where we would lose out on the benefits and the blessings of living in a gospel-centered community, where the promises of God, the promise of the glorious future with Christ is forgotten, where the light of the church is snuffed out, and the darkness of the city runs unrivaled. See, we are, in a, we are in a time of urgency. In fact, that's always been the state of the church. It's been this urgency that sort of undergirds Revelations chapters two and three. There is a lot at stake for the church. And it's not just a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and the second death. It's a matter of significant, etern or a matter of eternal significance. Now, these two chapters that we're looking at today contain a series of seven letters that are addressed to specific historical churches. These were real churches in Asia at the time that John, the apostle, wrote this. And as we see here, the, all seven churches sort of fall on a spectrum of health, sort of like the plants that are in my office right now. Some are, are thriving, 
Some look good, they're, they're flourishing and lush, and others are flopped over and decrepit and, and on the brink of extinction. John writes to them, and for each church, he has a very specific message. And I wish I had time to unpack each church because there's, it's really interesting if we were to go uh, church by church through this. I just don't have the time for that, which some of you might be relieved to hear that. And maybe sometime in the future, we'll revisit each church, go church by church, and really unpack what's going on here. But today, we're going to look at these churches as a unit. We're, we're going to make note of the best-case scenario churches and the worst-case scenario church. And, and hopefully, we'll, we'll get a big-picture view here and see what the common thread is between the best churches and the worst churches. But before we get focused on what's being said we have to remember who it is that's saying it. This is the book of Revelation. Revelation is sort of an unveiling or a revealing of truth. And what we saw in the last couple of weeks is that Jesus himself has appeared before the apostle John and shown up in this glorious vision. And Dr. Alex, if you were here last week, he, I was super jealous that he got to unpack that text and show you just how glorious Jesus is. And this glorious Jesus is speaking to the Apostle John, who then is to relay this message onto the churches, not just these seven churches, but knowing that this, this message would be held on to for the, the eternity of the church, right? For the entire duration of the church throughout time and space. And so what we see in this glorious, I just want to read it, this glorious vision of Jesus in Revelation 1, uh, verse 12 well, actually, it kind of backs up. He, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's having a worship service. And the spirit was there with him. And, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Like a trumpet. And he turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, which we find out represents the church. And in the midst of the seven lampstand is one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. His right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the glorious picture of Jesus that the apostle John sees. Now, if you think about it, this is a very different picture than the ethnocentric Jesuses that hang on the walls of most churches. You, you know the Jesus I'm talking about? The, the soft-skinned, effeminate, blue-eyed, blonde, curly-haired Jesus. The tender and mild and soft and just downright wimpy. You see, we, we, we like that version of Jesus. There's something about that Jesus that is approachable, is there not, right? To be buddy-buddy. That's a guy that I think I could walk up to and give a high five and then just sort of be on my way. And Jesus is this tender and kind and gentle man, but he's much more than just that. You see, when we have this view of this, this 
phony Jesus, it's, it's easy, easy for us to be apathetic or indifferent to the pseudo-Jesus. We look at this Jesus and, and we don't think that he's necessarily the, the chief authority in all of the universe. We don't look at him and think this is the king of kings and the lord of lords. We, we think that this is just a, a little pushover of a man. That he's gonna give us a few life-hacking nuggets, right? A little, little bit of advice so we can go on our way and maybe have a little bit of a better life. We tend to downplay Jesus when we see him this way. The problem here. The problem in seeing Jesus as a, as a passive, neutered life coach is that he becomes easy to ignore. We assume his, his voice is soft and hushed, that what he says is non-offensive, that it's not confrontational. And we think, this wimpy Jesus, he, he can't cross me. He's just happy that I'm here on Sundays, right? He's happy that I'm showing up and I'm serving and I'm giving and, and I'm living on mission. You know, I'm, I'm doing stuff. He's just happy that I'm doing this stuff. He's not, gonna, he's not gonna come and come at me and say, you know what, this is something that, that I really wanna push back on. Wimpy Jesus won't do that. He's too sweet. He won't push back. He won't challenge the way that I use my time. He won't, he won't challenge the way that I, I use my resources. He's not gonna challenge the way that I parent or how I work or the relation of work to my identity. He's not gonna push back on any of that. He's just a wimpy little Jesus. When we see Jesus like this, we don't take him seriously. It's easy to dismiss him because he is just a little wimp. But if there's one thing that Revelation chapter one tells us is that the caricature of a wimpy Jesus is flat out unbiblical. Yes, Jesus is tender. He's meek and he's mild. He's gracious and he's kind and he's full of compassion. Yes, he is. But that isn't because Jesus is weak. In fact, anybody who, who embodies tenderness and meekness and compassion knows that those things are not a sign of weakness. That's a, a sign of subdued strength. That's exactly what Jesus did, that his glory, the, the ferocity of his holiness is tempered and subdued as he came veiled in flesh. We'll start singing about this here in about a few weeks, right? Hark the herald angels sing, veiled incarnate deity. That God in all his intensity is veiled in Christ. It isn't lessened. It isn't downplayed. It's veiled. It's subdued. The transcendent glory that Jesus has had from eternity past and will have until eternity future is contained when he comes here and walks the earth in flesh so that we can be near to him. The, the, here's the tension with the real Jesus. He is both transcendent, that there's something glorious about him that blows every single category that we have. Yet he's imminent. We can be near to him, that he, he draws near to the weak. He's befriended sinners. But if we take this caricature of Jesus and run with it, right, we even miss Jesus when he's in his earthly ministry. There's a hard edge to Jesus when he's here in the flesh. 
Think of when he's turning over tables in the temple. He, he makes a whip out of cord. When Jesus confronts the Pharisees, Jesus isn't this soft little man. In fact, the first words, the first public words of Jesus' ministry is, is confrontational. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Now, Jesus did come in the flesh, and he, he subdued his glory. But now, in the present moment, Jesus no longer lives veiled in the flesh. He has returned to the Father, and, and he has been resurrected. The firstborn of the dead is what we're told. His glory is no longer hidden. His face shines like the sun in full strength. His eyes burn like fire. A sort of truth comes from his mouth. What he says is true and it cuts, it pierces the heart. His voice, non-ignorable, like the sound of, of rushing water, so loud and commanding that he, you can't brush him off, you can't ignore him. Think of it, this is the Jesus who says, let there be light and light immediately appears. Darkness, push back. This is the Jesus who stands on a boat in the midst of a storm and looks at the wind and the waves and the rain and he says, stop, be still. And in a moment it is, not even a ripple. If this is how inanimate objects respond to the sound of Jesus' voice, how much more should we And at the beginning of these, these letters that, that the Apostle John is documenting to give to the seven churches, every letter comes with a reminder of who is speaking to the church. It's not the wimpy Jesus. To Ephesus, he says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hands, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, Smyrna, the words of the first and the last, the alpha, the omega, the one who has died and has come to life. To Pergamum, to the words of him, there are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword coming forth. To Thyatira, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. To Sardis, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. To Philadelphia, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one can shut, who shuts and no one can open. And Laodicea, the words of the Amen. The amen. You know, the word amen, when we say it, when we finish our prayers, amen, it's, it's, it's an affirmation. Let it be so. Jesus is the let it be so, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. This is who speaks. And, and every time a letter opens up, this is, this is what we're thinking. We, we have this picture of this resurrected Jesus who's speaking with all authority in heaven and earth. Jesus who has all glory, majesty, power, and authority. And I'm going to work myself up if someone doesn't say amen. Come on. Thank you. It's good to have some help. You see, church, it's, that's who's speaking to us. 
But what's also essential for us as we, as we come to these letters is to realize who this Jesus, who this resurrected, glorious man God is speaking to, and he's speaking to the churches. He's not speaking to individuals, though there are individuals who represent the church. Jesus is speaking to churches. Now listen, sin fragments. Sin separates. Sin isolates us. And when Jesus came to earth and he lived the perfect life and he died the substitutionary death for sinners, what he did was restore his people to God and to one another. Listen to this quote from Eugene Peterson. The life of faith revealed and nurtured in the biblical narratives is highly personal, but never individual. Always there is a family, a tribe, a nation, or in other words, the church. Attention to the gospel message is always an act of community, never an exercise exclusively in private. Every tendency to privatize and individualize will distort and falsify the gospel. A believing community is the context of the life of faith. Now in our culture, we have a tendency to lean towards being highly individualized, doing what you want, when you want, on your own terms. And when this funnels its way into spirituality. What happens is that we, we long for an isolated experience of spirituality. That it's just me and Jesus. There, there are interesting trends going on right now. I, I don't know if you saw this. I think it was on CNN this week. There are virtual reality churches popping up right now. I don't, it's like the goggles. You wear the goggles and you go to church and people are digital, Right? And it's just you in your living room or in your bedroom or whatever, and you're showing up to church, and then you just take the goggles off, and then you go on your way. Or, or the, a new development. There, there's churches that are basically saying, hey, on your phone, you can have church now. Right? You just download the app. Watch the app, and then you have your little church service, and then you go on your way, and we'll meet you back here next week. And they're saying that's what it looks like to participate in church. Now, this is just individualism infiltrating and hijacking the Christian faith. And when we, when we live in a culture like this, it's easy for us to view participating with fellow believers or, or in a missional community in regular and meaningful ways as being extracurricular activities. Right, like Sunday is the main thing, but if I can't make it, you know, it's fine. And then if I can't make missional community or be with people in community, you know, that's fine. I just don't, my, my life is busy. But if you want to have a meaningful relationship with Jesus, you will find yourself embedded in Jesus' church. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a place for silence. I'm not saying that there there aren't people who are working toward that end of of prioritizing Jesus and their faith and, and the life of community. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a place for silence and solitude and retreat in the Christian life. In fact, you look at Jesus' life and you see that. 
Jesus would retreat and he'd go away for prayers and he'd take a few disciples with him and, and go spend time intimate, intimate time with them and the Father. But if you look at the vast majority of Jesus' spirit-filled life, it was spent with 12 guys who lived in community and on mission. That, that was Jesus' missional community. You see, it's, we don't make these things up at Sacred City Church. We don't think missional communities are a great way or a great strategy. We're looking at Jesus and how he did ministry. He, he brought 12 knuckleheads along with him everywhere he went and did ministry with them. And then those 12 guys went on, except for Judas. He was, if you think your missional community is bad, right? You think your missional community is hard? Jesus had a guy named Judas who went on and betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, right? It's really not that bad. Put it in perspective. But those guys, they went on to reproduce what Jesus did with them in new places with new people, thus the church expanded. Right, that, that, that is the church. Now so often we, we equate church with a building, right, a facility of, of brick and mortar and glass, and I think it's even evident in the language that we use when we say we're going to church. We don't go to church. We, we are the church. In fact, 1 Peter 2.5 says, says that we are living stones being built together as a spiritual house for God. This building will perish. It'll fall apart someday. I mean, it kind of is falling apart. But you know what? <laughs> One day it'll be gone. But the church, the people who are in this room will be eternally with Jesus. The church is God's family of people who are saved by grace, who belong to Jesus, and now they live inside of this dynamic relationship with the God of the universe and the people that God has called to be with him. These are people who remind you of the gospel, people who encourage you and egg you on for good works. And I'm not just saying the pastor like, if I'm the only people who's, person who's reminding you of the gospel, encouraging you on to good works, you are going to live a diminished life. You need other believers to walk alongside. And we see a beautiful picture of what a church looks like just after Pentecost happens. Jesus ascends into heaven, sends the Holy Spirit to be with his people. Something amazing happens. People are being converted in Acts 2.42. This is sort of like one of the places at Sacred City Church that we all have thumbed in our Bible because this is really what we aspire to as a church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Listen, from, from the front of the Bible to the end of the Bible, the one thing that God's people have in common throughout time and space, and there's a lot of things they have in common, but one of the major things, we saw it even in our call to worship today, was awe of God. The awe that, that you can't get that awe from looking at wimpy Jesus. You have to have your eyes set on the real Jesus. They're filled with awe, awe upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and they all had things in common. It wasn't just the things, they shared their life. They were known and, know, were known, and known by others, or they knew others and known by, you know what I'm saying? 
had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions. Radically generous, generous people. They're selling the possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together. At that time, the temple was a place where they would do mission. Right? The temple was a place for Jews. They're no longer Jews, but now they're, they're new Jews. They're, they're Christians. They're, they're the true family of Israel. They're going to the temple and they're breaking bread at their homes and they receive food with glad and generous hearts and they're praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who are being saved. That is the picture of the church. That is a community that belongs to Jesus, people who are living in community, who are sharing their life with one another and living on mission. Now you might think, I think there's just natural reservations to living like that. There's a lot of heart barriers, things standing in the way of people who actually, first of all, an unbeliever looks at that and says, that looks like a waste of my time. That looks like a lot of extra mess. I don't need that in my life. But even as Christians, when we experience the grace of God, there's still a piece of it. It's like, I don't want, that, that's a lot of hard work. Sharing my life with other people, taking other people into account before myself, that's, that's hard. But that is the power of the gospel. When people really wrap their minds around the gospel, when their hearts resonate with what Jesus has done, lives are changed and we're seeing people meeting others' needs. They're devoted to the teaching of the apostles. They're praying together. They're worshiping together. And in a lot of ways, that's our template for church life at Sacred City Church. See, our, if we are just a church for Sundays, we're failing We want to be a spirit-filled, scripture-cherishing, Jesus-glorifying community on mission. And really, when you think about it, that's the standard for success. It's not how big your building is or how nice it is, not how big your staff is or how many people attend your church on Sunday, though by God's grace, we're seeing the number added day by day. The standard for faithfulness is, is staying true to God's word, to worshiping Jesus, to living life in community and on mission. And I think that this is the way that Jesus measures these seven churches when he writes this letter here. Now Jesus, when he's speaking to John, after each introduction that he gives of himself, Jesus says this to the church. He says, I know. I, I know your works. I, I know your tribulations. This is not a generic Hallmark card that Jesus is mass mailing out to the churches. Jesus is intimately aware of every single church and its cultural dynamics. As he walks among the churches the, or the lampstands, his eyes are fire, he, he can see everything. There's nothing that isn't known by Jesus. He looks and he says, I know that it's hard to follow me in a hostile world. I know every single loving action that you've done that maybe has gone unseen. Jesus knows every city story. He knows its glory and he knows its disgrace. He looks at the churches and he sees their successes and their struggles. And because of this, because Jesus is aware he knows how to diagnose. He knows how to step in and say, here's some help. He knows every area where the church needs, is, needs grace and courage and strength. 
And if the same is true of the church, is the same is true in your life. Jesus is not oblivious to what's going on with you. He's your great high priest who knows all your sadness and he's wanting to connect you to the Father. He's, he's very aware. And the same can be said about our church. Jesus knows what's going on at Sacred City Church. He knows, he knows where we're living by faith. He knows where we're retreating in fear. And I think it's both a glorious thing and it's a terrifying thing to be known like that. But here's one thing that I know. To be known like that, to know that Jesus knows us thoroughly and completely means that there is no place for posturing and pretending. It does us no good. Because we are seen and known for who and what we are. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Jesus knows, people. And Jesus knows when he looks at the seven churches, I want to start with Smyrna and Philadelphia because these two stand out as the two best churches here. They're spiritually rich. They're, they're enduring persecution. They're being patient with God, enduring, keeping God's word, not denying Christ's name. They're not retaliating against their enemies that they're being slandered and persecuting. They're demonstrating spiritual power, even in a lack of cultural power. I think, this is, this is my observation, I would imagine that they look a lot like the church in Acts chapter 2 living in community and on mission, zealous for good works, passionate about the gospel and people coming to know who Jesus is. And for these two churches, Jesus says, I know everything about you. And listen, I don't have a rebuke. I don't have, I don't have a, uh, any pushback for you. All, all he offers is encouragement. He says, keep on being faithful. Hold fast to what you have. Now, don't, don't be mistaken here. These churches aren't perfect. There, there's no such thing as a perfect church on this side of eternity. But these men and women, these men and women who are making up the church in Smyrna and Philadelphia, they are being faithful in fulfilling the role of the church. Now, Jesus told us what the role of the church is in Matthew 5. This is the purpose for the church. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be shaken. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, right? Lamp stand, you see that there? And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, church, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. These two churches are being faithful to their purpose to display the light of Christ to the world. And let me tell you what, there is no affirmation sweeter than Jesus commending your church. I hope this is what Sacred City Church hears at the end of our, I hope this church is here until Jesus comes back. But, but, but as, we, as our church hits the marks of being here for our kids and then our grandkids and their grandkids and on and on and on, I hope that when Jesus comes back, he says, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful. You haven't been perfect, but you've clung to the gospel. 
That's my hope. But for the other five churches, it's a different story. At best, at best, some of these churches are semi-faithful. There's a little bit of faithfulness and not so much faithfulness. Most of them are really struggling to display Christ well. The tendency here is that they start looking more like the culture around them than they do Christ. Now keep in mind, at this point, when when John is writing, the church is barely 50 years old. Right, and we're talking, like some of them saw the resurrected Jesus as he ascended to glory. Like they saw him with their own eyes and they're still having these problems. You would think that this would be the golden era for the church, but even when you read the New Testament, you see that's not the case. All of the churches everywhere at all times have something messed up about them. Look at 1 Corinthians. Look at Galatians. These people are a mess. And that's the case. When you're dealing with sinful people, they saved, they're saved people, but they're still sinful people. There's a tendency to forget the gospel. There's a tendency to forget your identity in Christ and to live the way Christ calls you to live. And when I say that, that people are forgetting the gospel, I'm not saying that it's completely lost. In fact, four out of the five churches that we see are commended for something, right? That there's some piece of the gospel that's still intact as they worship together, but there are some pieces of the gospel that are forgotten and ignored. In Ephesus, these people are devoted to theology, Right? They, they love their theology, but in loving their theology, they've lost their first love. They have orthodoxy, they have the right belief, but they're not living out of that belief. They don't have orthopraxy, the practice of that belief. Pergamum and Thyatira, these are churches that are laced with false teaching, sexual immorality, pagan worship. They just have an overall lack of discernment. Sardis, It's a mannequin of a church. It had features of the church, but it's dead inside. They're lacking any sort of vitality. And then Laodicea, who's definitely the worst case scenario, there's nothing positive said about him. Jesus looks at him and said, you guys are are spiritually bankrupt. You're lukewarm and I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. The reality is it does not take long for a church to self-implode and lose its distinctiveness from the world. Now, usually it's unintentional. And I think that this is a trend that's going on right now with some of these mainline denominations where they find themselves on the slippery slope. Conservative churches start to look more like Ephesus. They're doctrinally pure, but they're ignorant of the mission. They're not zealous for telling people about the gospel of Jesus. Liberal churches adapt to the opinions of the secular secular culture in order to become more relevant or to to reach more people. Mega churches, they might have the appearance of of looking alive, but really they kind of look like Sardis where maybe they're dead spiritually inside. Either way, these churches have veered off the straight and narrow. They've ended up in one of the ditches. And there's not one way of failing that's better than the other. All of the ways that these churches have, have failed compromise the health and the vitality of the church. And at the center of this demise of the church 
The thing that makes it happen is a disregard for God's word. It's where people stop taking Jesus seriously. It's where they start explaining away the unpopular or confrontational ex- uh, passages. They, they think they're taking out the obstacles. They say things like, oh, well, that applied back then, but things are different now. Our, our society has morphed and evolved. Or it's where churches are, are too focused on the purity of their doctrine that they don't even care about living it out. They don't have time to be practitioners. They appreciate the word and agree with what it says, but, but their lives are not shaped by that word. And so they're brushing off what Jesus says. Now listen, our church is prone to do this too, especially if we forget who's speaking to the church. If the church wants to be found faithful, if the church wants to endure and keep with it and hold fast, we must realize who it is, once again, who's speaking to us. It's Jesus. The author, perfecter of our faith, the alpha, the omega. And so it's out of reverence and trust that, that we don't go about manipulating the word or twisting it to get to, to our, own, our, our own view on it. We hold fast to it. We accept it for what it is. In fact, this is the call of every church. This is the, the common thread between all of these seven churches that we see here. To the unfaithful churches, Jesus tells them first, repent, to, to turn from your error, give your ear toward God. Don't treat God's word like it's some sort of malleable goo. Treat it as if it's the solid foundation in which it is. And there's confidence here in knowing that there's no church that's too far gone. Look at Laodicea. There's nothing good about them. But Jesus says, the reason why I'm confronting you is not to condemn you, but to correct you, to reprove you. And he says, you know what? If I'm knocking here on your door, if you were to open up this door, I'll come in and I'll dine with you. There's no church that's too far gone. That's the power of the resurrection in the life of the church at play. And then once the repentance stuff is is said, Jesus says to all the church, he says, hold fast to the word. This hold fast, this hold tight. Don't let go of it. Cling to it like your life depends on it, which it does. Cherish it. Study it. Really what he's saying here is take take a, a Psalm 19 view of God's word. Look at it as if it's more desirable than gold. That it's sweeter than honey. That it's soul reviving. Now I'm wrapping up here. I'm going to be in my seat in just a minute. But each letter, this is really important here. Each letter ends with this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And every, every letter we see that. Jesus is saying, listen up, people. P- pay attention. He's like, don't you realize who it is that's speaking to you right now? Because what Jesus has to say to the church is a matter of life and death. It has eternal significance. And what he says to these seven churches is pertinent to to us today. In fact, every church throughout time and history and space. Jesus is saying, give me your ear. Now, friends, listening is a spiritual endeavor. A lot, a lot of times we think it's just a, like a physical thing, right? There are, there are audio waves that go through the air and they resonate on our eardrum and that's what listening is. No, that's, that's just the first step of it. 
Listening is a spiritual endeavor where your heart has to have the same receptors as your eardrum. That the first wave goes through your ears and the second wave goes from your head to your heart. Here's a, a double meaning we see. That this message is for everyone. All of the churches, it's the same message, listen up. But at the same time, hearing Jesus, not just listening, not just letting the, the eardrums reverberate, but actually hearing Jesus requires special hardware that you can only have when your heart has been regenerated by faith. It means that not everyone who hears the words is going to respond appropriately. There are some people who are going to hear and disregard it. I think of the parable of the four soils that Jesus tells in his Gospels. The ears of our heart have to be opened up by faith in order to hear and receive and to act on the word that Jesus provides. And friends, let me tell you, the resurrected Jesus is speaking to us today. He's not just speaking to those people. He's not just speaking to the church in history. He's speaking to us today. Every time you open up your Bible, Jesus has a word for you. Every time the word of God is publicly read, he has a word for you. Every time the word is preached, he has a word for you. Jesus is speaking. Are you listening? Are your ears open to Jesus? Do you receive what he says with gladness and trepidation? Are you taking him seriously? Or are your ears like the rocky soil where Jesus' words land and maybe the seed is germinated but nothing takes root? Or is your heart calloused and those seeds come and it just bounces off like a ping pong ball on a statue? Or are your ears like a weedy patch where you're listening to all kinds of other things? You're listening to what the world is saying. You're listening to to what talk radio is saying. You're listening to, to what the major news outlets are saying. And it's choking out what Jesus is saying. Church, if we're gonna make it, we need to learn how to listen, how to take Jesus at his word. Now, for each one, each letter, there is a blessing that is promised to the church in every letter. No matter how futile the church looks at the moment, there is a blessing and a promise that's there. And Jesus says, to the one who conquers, it's like those who are faithful, those who hold fast, those who conquer with what we just, in our our profession, those who who are more than conquerors with Christ. Now, when we think about conquering, we usually assume that there's some sort of fight, some sort of physical action that takes place. But for Christianity, the physical action that's taking place isn't necessarily on our shoulders. It's what Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection. It's what he has accomplished for us in defeating sin, death, and the grave on the the cross and then rising from the dead to show his power and authority over such forces. Thus, the primary work of the Christian is to listen, to listen to the word that was made flesh, to hear what Jesus has done for you, which you could not do for yourself, that he is the one who's ultimately went to battle and he has won for us now as his his beneficiaries, as heirs of the kingdom. 
Christ has accomplished something for us and we respond by linking arms with him. This is what spiritual listening entails. It's not just a matter of listening. There's always an action that proceeds out of spiritual listening. That we take Jesus seriously in a way that we embrace it and live by it, meditate on it, delight in it. Where we let the word direct our lives, where it's formative for living in community and on mission, that we are zealous for the light of Jesus to be in our city. Those who hang on with Christ will inherit all of these blessings that we're gonna see here in a second. Because Christ has held on to us. That he has fought and won. And so in light of his victory, if we are conquerors with him, if we overcome by holding fast to his word, we're given the tree of life to be in paradise with God. Fully and eternally satisfied. Never again disgraced by sin. We receive the crown of life that not even the second death can take away from us. We receive the hidden manna. A white stone with a new name on it. You're so known by God that you don't even realize that you have a new name that you're gonna get someday. Fully and intimately known. He says, I'm gonna give you the morning star and you'll share with Jesus as he rules over every nation. You'll be clothed in white garments. You'll be purified. Your sins that won't be stained anymore. Wiped clean. And professing your faith in Christ, Jesus confesses our name before the throne of God and angels, and he says, that one is mine. You were made into a pillar of God's temple, clearly belonging to him, your, his name implanted on your name, and you will dine with Jesus and be seated with him on his throne. These are the promises that are available to those who hold fast to the word who take Jesus seriously, that, that when we hear the word of God, it's not just something to take it or leave, it's something we hold fast to and cling to. Church, this is too good for us to pass up. Jesus endured too much for us to let us pass this by. Let us hold fast to the word of Christ, church. Let us be faithful to the words he puts before us. Let our hearts be soft to receive. Let's be faithful in orthodoxy in what we believe, but also in orthopraxy in how we practice our faith so that our light may shine before all men and give glory to our Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ that he is the victor. There is no rival. Death has been defeated. Sin is now in chains. And we have the promise of eternal life with you if we hold fast. Father, we, at the same time we want to hold fast, our confidence is not in our own grip. Our confidence is not in our ability to, to hold to the word of God and do it effectively. Our confidence is in Christ who has done all things according to your word, who has never once turned his ear from you, his heavenly father, who obeyed even to the point of death and has even listened as he's in the grave. His ears were open and in power, God called him out and up. Father, would it be with the same power that we live our lives? We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If the men who are serving would come forward, please.